Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Today we're going to be in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 10. We covered verses 1 through 9 last week, so we're going to pick up there. Some of you like to get a head start on that, so you can turn there. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into the message. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the folks that you've decided to have in this place at this time in human history, whether they're watching online, whether they're physically entering the building right now or been here for hours. Father, I pray that this would be a special time as we open up your Scripture. Even for me, I've already preached this sermon in one service, and, and I've studied this passage all week. If you want to show me something, please, I pray that you'd show it today. Your Spirit, will your Spirit move and your Word convict and change and encourage and comfort and, and do all the stuff that you do that you promise you do in the Bible. God, I pray we wouldn't just be religious folks checking a box. Help us not to go. You stirred up so much stuff these past year and a half, two years, and that we don't want to just go through the status quo. God, would, would you make us followers of yours that are radically on fire for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I don't know what kind of movies you like to watch, but I love a movie that has a good rescue scene. And I was re-watching a movie recently called Captain Phillips. Have you seen that movie? Yeah, you like that movie? Some of you like that movie? And uh, if you haven't seen the movie, it's starring Tom Hanks. He's a great actor, and he's playing, a, it's based on a true story. A guy named Richard Phillips was a sea captain, and uh, he was supposed to take a cargo boat, uh, a bunch of containers on it, uh, from somewhere up in northern Africa, around the Horn of Africa, and they were about 600 miles off the coast, and some pirates, Somalian pirates, hijacked the boat. They tried, it's real dramatic in the, in the whole process of how it took place, but the summary was the four guys that were on this little dinghy uh, had machine guns, and the people that were on this big cargo boat didn't have any weapons, and the guys that were getting off the boat or onto the boat to hijack it wanted to get millions of dollars. The problem was they only had about $30,000 on the boat, and so they thought they could hold the cargo for ransom and get their money. Uh, Lots of debate, lots of tension took place, but eventually the guys on the cargo boat persuaded the hijackers to get off the boat and get into a lifeboat. Now, when I say lifeboat, if you haven't seen the movie, I don't mean like a little, you know, rubber boat that's opened. It looked like a submarine. It was all enclosed, but it, it floated on top of the water. And what happens is, right as they're about to get into the lifeboat, they grab Captain Phillips and they put him in the lifeboat with them. And so it's him and four Somalian pirates with their machine guns inside this orange contained boat, and they're supposed to now go 600 miles. Now, they're not on a huge uh, container boat anymore. They're on this little dinghy, and things get tense. The pirates run out of food. They all get hangry, just like you and I would. They start arguing with each other. One of them wants to kill Phillips. The other one says, no, this is how we're going to get millions of dollars. They're fighting over it. He gets beat up a couple times in the process. Then eventually there's a U.S. uh, naval boat that comes up, tries to negotiate with the pirates peacefully. That doesn't go well. And then Phillips tries to escape from the pirates. They swim in the water. They catch him. When they get back in the boat, they're mad. So they beat him again. The most intense scene happens when they've got him blindfolded and they're about to kill him inside the lifeboat. But the U.S. Navy guys do a maneuver so that their boat moves and all their heads come in front of a window and U.S. Navy SEALs sniped them, all three of them, right up. Imagine being Phillips. You're sitting there. You think you're about to get killed by pirates. The next thing you know, you're covered in blood. It's not yours. You take your blindfold off and there's three dead pirates around you. He was rescued. But the most touching scene in the movie happens after that. It's what happens next, as he goes to see the medic, and he comes into the medic, and he's traumatized, so he's not speaking, and he's coming in, and you can see like this glazed look on his face, and the woman that brings him in says, I'm Chief Officer O'Brien, 
I'll be your corpsman today, and starts to care for him and shows that she's in charge and that she's going to take care of him, that he's going to be okay, but he can't answer anything. So she asks simple questions like, are you okay? And he's just sitting there traumatized. Says, do you have any pain? And he can't say anything, but he kind of weighs behind his ribs. And she comes over and she raises his arm up in the air and says, does that hurt? And the first word he says, a little bit, like he's trying not to cry. And he's like, you know, it hurts a lot. And he says, a little bit. And she talks him through some of his injuries, asking him how he's doing, says, you've got a laceration over your eyebrow, you've got a, a cut on the side of your head. Is this all from those cuts? And then he looks down and he realizes, this is not my blood. And somebody's cutting his shirt off, and then they lay him down on the, the bed that he's there on, and she tells him, you're going to be okay, you're safe. And he says, thank you. And then here's the, I don't cry very often in movies. My, we'll watch these romance movies. I look at my wife, I'm like, what's wrong with you? Or am I dead inside? Like, what's happening here? But I always get emotional at that point in that movie because the next time he says, like, through tears, thank you. Like, it's so inadequate. I've been rescued. This is, I'm covered in blood. It's not even my own blood. But all I have is to say, thank you. Follower of Christ. Last week, we talked about God's grace. We said that you are saved by grace. Another word for saved is rescued. You've been rescued by grace. Do you remember what you were rescued from? You were dead, but it gets worse. You were dead in trespasses. It gets worse. You were dead in trespasses and sins. It gets worse. You were following the way of the world. You were following Satan. You were following self. You are a child of wrath. So just from those three verses in Ephesians, you've been saved from Satan. You've been saved from self. You've been saved from sin. You've been saved from God's wrath. You've been rescued from God's wrath. You've been rescued from sin. You've been rescued from self. That's pretty amazing, isn't it, follower of Christ? And it wasn't by your blood. It was by somebody else's blood. Amen? But here's my question for you today. Now what? That's the gospel. And many of you know the gospel, but now what? Today's message is really only for you if you're a follower of Christ. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, I'm going to tell you in this message how you can become one, but this message isn't really for you. I'm talking to people, you know God's grace. You know what it is to be rescued. You know what you've been rescued from. But many of you, you know that information, you kind of put that in your back pocket, and you don't know what to do next. Today we're going to talk about, so what's next? After you're rescued from grace, then what does grace do in your life? I've titled today's message, Grace Works. And we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 10. But to give you context, to pick up from what we talked about last week, we covered two of the most famous verses in Ephesians last week, verses 8 and 9. So I'm going to start reading in verse 8. Chapter 1, you're seated with Christ, you've got a new identity, adopted into His family, uh, open your eyes so you could experience it. And then chapter 2 is all about you were dead in your trespasses, now you've been made alive. And it says in verse 8, for by grace you've been saved or rescued through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Your faith is not even your own. It's a gift from God, not a result of works so that you can't become proud. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so here you have verses 8 and 9, really a summary of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And here, if you're not a Christian, here's how you become one. This is that point in the message that you receive by grace something you didn't earn, something that's given to you. We defined it last week. Grace is undeserved favor. God's riches at Christ's expense, being fully known and fully loved, and you receive something that's given to you. That was Jesus' death on the cross and His resurrection, and He gives you life and forgiveness, but you've got to accept it. How does that happen? Through trusting Him. A word the Bible uses is faith. Place your trust in Him. Place your faith in Him. And you won't even do that on your own if God's not working in your life, but if He's working in your life and you want to trust Him, you can trust Him today. Those of you who've done that, 
And if you've grown up in churches like our church, a Southern Baptist church, a Presbyterian church, a Methodist church, a Nazarene church, any church, there's all these different denominations that's a, sometimes called an evangelical church. You're part of what's called the Protestant Reformation. That means you are a protester. <laughs> you are protesting against some of the um, bad things that were happening in the church and church history when they were making salvation something that you earned by things that you do. And what happened was some guys, they called them reformers in the 1500s, came and looked at this passage of Scripture like this and says, no, it says right here, not by works. You're not saved by any work. It's not anything you do. It's what Christ has done for you, and that's great, and it's true, and it's biblical. But what happens sometimes, and we don't mean for it to happen, is that we start hearing that, and we hear all these things about works are bad. Works are not the way that you get to heaven, and we think that works are bad. And we think somehow works don't have any part in our faith. And so what happens is, for some of us, is we become passive Christians, not intentionally, unintentionally. We ignore passages of Scripture that say things about striving, pressing forward, earning rewards, anything that has to do with works, we feel like there might be something wrong with that, and we'll go to slogans instead, let go and let God. Like we just kind of sit back and let stuff happen, we become passive Christians. And so what happens is we've received grace, I'm not saying we're not Christians, we've received grace. But it's like we're going to put it in our back pocket and we're going to use it someday, but just it doesn't apply today. It's kind of like some of you know this uh, summer that I took a summer sabbatical. The church was gracious to give me a break uh, from doing ministry um, through the summer. And I was able to have some time and space and just think through some things in my life. One of the things that I did uh, was went through some old things that I had been collecting. When I was a kid, and I mean like elementary school kid, I bought baseball cards and football cards and basketball cards, and I collected them, and I have carried them around my entire life. I've got a big tub, like a, literally a huge bin of cards that I haven't looked at in 20-some uh, years. And I, I bought them like fourth, fifth, sixth grade. And I've been married and carried this everywhere we've lived. We've lived in 13 different places, four different states, over 20 years. And not one time have I taken these cards out and looked at them. And so I decided this summer, I need to figure out how to pay for my kids' college. I've got four kids. I'm not trying to stress anybody out right now, but if you haven't thought about that, it's stressful when you start looking at what college costs. And I know that in sermon illustrations before, I've used illustrations of like little pieces of cardboard with a picture of a player on it that cost millions of dollars. And I thought, what if I have one of those? <laughs> and so I got my bin out and I started going through all my, I dedicated a whole day to go through the cards. And I, I had some cards, I got a picture of some of the cards. I had some good ones, some of you, some of you guys are UNC fans. I had a couple Michael Jordan cards. You know, a couple baseball cards when I was watching baseball, playing Little League and football cards and, and going through them. I had, like I said, it was a huge tub full of them. I, as I looked at them, I didn't have any that I thought was worth a million dollars. I did find this gem, however. <laughs> that was me in fifth grade football. I'll be auctioning that off for the cost of uh, tuition or a notebook or something. Um, so I went through them and I thought, what if I did find one, though? Because I don't know if you saw, there's a, a card that comes up every once in a while in the news. About two weeks ago, Honus Wagner's card sold again. It was a famous old baseball card. This time it sold for $6.6 million. I thought, what if I had found the Honus Wagner card? What would I have done with it? And it keeps going up in value. And so what, would I, what I probably would have done is the same thing that many of us, some of you even when I was talking about having these collectibles were nodding your head like, yeah, I've got that. I've got something in my attic somewhere in a garage, in a storage bin, somewhere. You take it and you put it in some plastic. And someday you're going to cash it in, and that's how many of us treat eternal life. You know you have it. You possess it. You believe it's valuable. And one day you're going to use it, probably when you die. 
but not today. But if you read the Bible, eternal life is not a ticket to get into heaven. Eternal life is a relationship with Jesus Christ that starts today. You're supposed to experience continually. But what happens for many of us, if you take those two concepts together, that works are bad, and, and so I'm the passive in my Christianity, and I've received grace, I know that I'm a Christian, but it doesn't really apply now, and we miss the full picture of this passage. Verses 8 and 9 are incredible verses. They are true, they are the gospel that might change somebody's life today. But don't miss verse 10. And what verse 10 teaches us is that if you receive a grace that works, real salvation, that leads to grace works. And that's our first point today. A grace that works results in grace works. Those are grace-empowered works in our lives. Look at how Paul says it in chapter 2 and verse 10. For we, and it's important that we all are on the same page about who we are, we is not all of creation. We are the people who have experienced Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 9, that we were dead and now we've been made alive. We is believers, not all humans. We are those of us who placed our faith by grace. We've been rescued through faith in Christ. That's the we, our God's workmanship, created in Jesus Christ. He created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the we are those of us who are in Christ, and who are we? He says we're His workmanship, created to do what? Good works. The way the Reformers would oftentimes say is, if you were trying to do works in order to receive love, that was wrong. But if you're in love with God, there will be works for God. So the way we've oftentimes interpreted it was never even their intention, and it certainly wasn't God's intention because it says here, He's got good works for us from before the beginning of time. And it says that we here are His workmanship. I like how the New Living Translation actually tries to put a picture on this passage of Scripture. Look at what it says. We'll put it up on the screen. It says, we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. So who are we? We are, it says in this passage, His workmanship in the English Standard Version or His masterpiece in the New Living Translation. Both of those translations come from one Greek word. It's the word poema. That's where we get our English word poem. But it's not just talking about poetry in the original intention. It's talking about any work of art. And so we are God's work of art, it's saying in this passage of Scripture. And you think about the different works of art you've seen. What's the most beautiful work of art you've ever seen? And that could be a building, some architecture that took place. It could be a painting. It could be a meal that you've eaten. It could be a play that you've seen. What's the most beautiful work of art you've ever seen? I think about it in my own life. I remember when I graduated from seminary, my wife and I were able to take a trip, and we went to see the Sistine Chapel. And we were able to see probably the most famous work of art there is the ceiling that Michelangelo painted. And they tell you when you go in there, there's no pictures, you can't take any pictures. And so, I don't know if most pastors are like this, but to me, that was like, I got to get a picture. It was a temptation. Romans 7 happened. I don't know what it was, but so I had my little digital. This is before iPhones. That's how old I am. Before iPhone, I had a little digital camera. I'm walking around taking shots. Yeah, that's not one of them. We stole this from the internet. That's Wikipedia right there. But uh, you can see here all the, all the figures, all the people, the biblical narrative that's told there. Uh, Michelangelo painted this between 1508 and 1512. So it took four years. If you look at it, it's interesting. You'd wonder where he started. Probably the most famous part are the fingers coming together. He actually started uh, with the drunken Noah and then painted backwards to creation. But that wasn't originally what he was even asked to do. He was asked to paint the 12 apostles on the ceiling of this chapel. And uh, he refused. Some of you are artists or no artists, and so you can under, you know, they want to do it their own way. Totally got to respect that. 
Um, he, want, he was asked to paint 12 apostles. There's over 300 characters that he's painted on the ceiling here. And originally, he actually thought his enemies set him up with this invitation. It's one of the greatest works of art that's ever been done. And he thought that he was being invited because his enemies knew that he was actually a sculptor. And they thought he'd trap him and to get him to do some big project that he can't actually do. He doesn't have the skill to do these frescoes. And so he was going to hire a bunch of apprentices and really direct them to be able to do it. But he didn't like, if you also know artists, he didn't like what they did, so he decided to do the whole thing himself. <laughs> and uh, he did. And it's one of the greatest works of art that's ever been created. Michelangelo is an incredible artist. And people have copied uh, the way that he's painted bodies and different things in this. And there's legends about how he did it. I remember when we were, when our kids were younger, we put little pieces of paper underneath tables and told them to lay down on their backs and paint the paintings. And, and uh, because legend is that he painted on scaffolding, that's not true, just so you know. <laughs> he actually stood on some scaffolding that he had built for that. But there's lots of story with this. And it resulted in one of the greatest works of art that's ever been painted. Michelangelo is an incredible painter, but he's got nothing on God. Think about the most beautiful creation that God's ever made. Some of you might think of the Grand Canyon or the stars in the sky or a sunset or a sunrise. The Bible says it's you. The passage says it, and you can be like, well, this is just something like you're trying to make me feel good about myself. No, no, no. Look at the passage. For we, those of you who are in Christ, are God's… It's the pinnacle of His artwork, His masterpiece, His workmanship. And He's taking everything in your story to make you who you are as you are here at this very moment. I know each one of you, you look in the mirror in the morning, we all have things we don't like. Maybe they're physical, maybe they're part of your story, they're emotional, mental, whatever they are. We all have things we don't like. God's using all that stuff to weave you together into the work of art that He desires for you to be. And you think about that in your own story. And, and this week I was thinking about it through the lens of Moses. Moses is a great story to look at because we know the end of his story and the exodus and leading people into the promised land, or not to the promised land, through the wilderness for a long time, getting right up to the edge of the promised land. But you go back, and if you read, and I don't know if you've read this or not, but do you know what it says what Moses' parents said about him that every parent says about their baby? Moses was a fine child, the Bible says. They saw him, they thought, that is a, that is a nice baby. And he didn't get killed like the other Hebrew babies. And said he got adopted into an Egyptian family. And he goes to the palace and he's educated in the, the palace of Egypt. But he's a Hebrew. And he's got this desire for justice. And so he commits murder, his sin. There, right, right, and God uses that. And he uses the education. And he uses the background. And he uses his sin. And he puts him on the backside of the desert for 40 years. And as we read it, we can look at it and go, he's preparing him because he's going to lead people through the wilderness himself. He's taking him there before he has to take other people there. And so he's taking… But we can see that. He's living it. You're living your story. But do you ever think about how he used the other people in Moses' story? Obstacle people, people that caused pain in his life, people that were supports. He's got Miriam and Aaron and he's got his wife and, and, and you've got all these different people in his story. What about Pharaoh? We always read him and it's easy to objectify Pharaoh, but he's a real person, the hard heart towards God. And God used him. God helped me see this when I was watching a, a Netflix series, and it was maybe, it wasn't a Bible Netflix series. In fact, it was kind of cheesy. There's a little cheese factor too. It was uh, Cobra Kai. I don't know if anybody here has watched that or not. Okay, some of you have watched it. You can judge me if you'd like to. That's totally fine. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's a Netflix series that's really a spinoff based on a, a 1980s movie, The Karate Kid, Danielson, you know, The Crane Kick, you know, if you, don't know if you remember that movie, or if you've seen that movie. And it's really, the movie's told towards uh, the idea of this kid that gets bullied, and then he enters this All-Valley Karate Tournament, and then through the crane kick, he ends up winning the tournament. Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen a movie from 1985, that's not my fault. And so, <clears throat> he does that. But then the Cobra Kai, 
tells the story of their life after that, but really through the eyes of the guy that was considered the bully and the karate kid. It's through the eyes of a guy named Johnny. And there's, there's one episode in the first season that's one of the most brilliant things that I've seen on TV in a long, long time. It's where Johnny tells his version of what happened in the movie only from his perspective, and he's not a bully. What he says is there's this new kid that came to school, stole my girlfriend, then started doing all these pranks on me and shows this like hose coming in and, and, and all this stuff is really true. They're facts that are actually true. But you're looking at it going, you really see it this way. And he puts this hose on me and then we get to the All Valley tournament. He does an illegal kick, steals my glory, steals my fame. And you're watching the show and you're going, you really think this is true? And the facts are true, but you have this different perspective. And you know what? Moses had a perspective and Pharaoh had a perspective and you have a perspective. And I don't know what you've done in your story. I don't know where you've been, and I don't know what's been done to you, but I know that God's weaving it all together as His masterpiece to put you right where you're at. Why? Look at the last part of the verse. Why? Why this? And why? And how, there's certainly He didn't use, listen, if you've got a scenario or a fact in your life or a moment in your life, God was there, just so you know. He used the greatest sin in all of human history. When Judas betrayed Jesus, when Judas was filled with Satan, God's working even with Satan. And your sanctification, your transformation, and your salvation. He used the worst sin in human history, the murder of his son, so that you could have salvation. God's working through all of it. Why? Why? What does it say in verse 10? Which God prepared beforehand. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should, and you might underline this word, walk in them. Walk is a key word in the book of Ephesians. And we're really going to get into it when we start to apply Ephesians. Ephesians has more uh, commands and application starting in chapter 4. But right here we see it. We see this important. In fact, last week we didn't talk much about it, but it was in verse 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, it talked about the way that we used to walk when we followed the world and our flesh and the devil. That we were walking in verse 2. And then it says walking here in verse 10. That's what Bible scholars call an inclusio. And what they're doing is they're framing the topic of the day. They start off with the word and they end with the word. Everything in between there is about that word. It's all about the walk. And so you and I know, and hopefully you won't do this. I'm not asking you to judge anybody at our church. But if you go out in the lobby today and you start watching people, so don't go be a people watcher. But if you did, that everybody here has a different walk. Some of you kind of have a strut you walk with. Some of you are real intentional, A-type personalities. You're getting to where you need to go. Some of you kind of mosey, more of a cowboy. Some of you might limp. Maybe you're injured and you limp. Or you're just really cool and you limp. I don't know. Well, we all have different walks. You know what? That's true with God as well. Everybody's walk is different. And your walk doesn't have to look like my walk. Everybody's walk doesn't need to look the same. But there are only two paths that you walk on. And we get real messed up on this as Christians. And so I want you to hear this. There are two paths that we walk on, according to the Bible. Now, there are Christian books that are out there that don't make this really fuzzy. There's lots of statements to get said, bumper stickers, little tweets, all that kind of stuff. But here's the reality. There are two paths you walk on with God. Verse 2 tells us one of them, and it's you're walking away from Him. The Old Testament says there was a way that seems right to you, but in the end it leads to destruction. You're walking, you're following yourself. You're following sin. You're following the world. That's one path. The other path is verse 10, and that's when you're walking with Him. We get this idea sometimes that there's some secret third path that we somehow can miss as a Christian that's behind some curtain that God's hiding on us because He doesn't really want us to know it unless we listen really, really close. There's not a third path. 
If you're walking with God, you're walking in the works He wants you to do. And so there's not some secret verse I need to take you to to show you, to explain to you, verse 10, when it says that He prepared beforehand good works for us to walk in, and of course you're going to ask, what works are they? Sometimes they're really mundane works, like going to work. or taking your kid to school, or paying a bill, or being kind to a neighbor. But if you're walking with Him, those are the works He predestined for you to do. If you're not walking with Him, you're not on some third path that's good but not God's path. No, you're following the world, you're following the flesh, you're following Satan. There's two paths. And the grace works are the ones where you are empowered to walk with Him, because grace not only is a gift that you're given that saves you, it's a power that you're given that empowers you to walk in the works. I wish we had more time to unpack what this is. I'm going to give you a couple verses on your own. You might jot these down even if you don't take notes, put it in your little phone, text yourself, whatever. But grace is more complex than we oftentimes uh, give it credit for in the Bible. So we define it, undeserved favor. Good definition, get it, God's riches at Christ's expense. Helpful, helps us grasp those things. I'm not saying they're wrong to say, fully loved, fully known, it's experience of it. But it's not just a gift that's given to us. There's also an empowerment that comes with grace. Think about this verse that's pretty popular. People know you're going through a difficult time. Sometimes people will tell you this. Paul prayed three times for God to do something a certain way in his life. God said no all three times. But then he says, my grace is sufficient for you. He's not talking about his gift of salvation. Think about you, you've got a difficulty in your life that I'm not going to relieve. I'm not taking the difficulty away, but I'm going to give you my grace. That's an empowerment. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10. Paul's talking about how, how much work he's done, how he's worked harder than all the apostles and all of his good works. And then he says, but it wasn't me. It's grace that was working in me. So grace works? Yeah. A grace that works to save you leads to grace works in your life. But what does that look like? And that's the next part of our passage. People who know grace, show grace. People who know God's grace vertically, show God's grace horizontally. Look at it with me. We'll walk through the passage and then we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11. Therefore, and so anytime you see therefore, it's connecting back. And so in light of what we've just talked about in verse 10 and all that we've talked about in Ephesians so far, therefore, remember that at one time, and so what we're going to read in these next couple verses is a lot like what we saw last week in chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. It gets really dark. Because you're going to say, remember how bad your past was. Remember that at one time, you, Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision. In other words, people were calling you names. A Gentile is anybody who's not a Jew. And I know we have both in our church people of uh, culturally Jewish backgrounds and people uh, that are not. Most are not. And so, like the church of Ephesus, most of them were Gentiles. And so, those Jewish people, they called you the uncircumcision. And most of you are like, yeah, whatever, I don't care. That's Bible trash talk, just so you know. That's like when David was going to fight Goliath, and he says, you uncircumcised dog. So you're being called trash. You're being called a dog. You were called trash. You were called a dog. You were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, what are called the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. This was an act of the hands anyways. But, and then we get a command, verse 12, this is the command I said to you on week one. I said, if anybody can find the one command in the first three chapters, take you to lunch. Still got lunches on the schedule. And so it says here, remember, that's what, that's what we're supposed to do, remember. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants. That's another word for promises. In other words, God's promises didn't apply to you. That's all of us, by the way. Your covenants of the pro- you're a stranger to the promises, you had no hope, you were without God in the world, but now. Those are good words. Last week we said, but God. 
This week we say, but now. And we see but now throughout the Bible as well. Last week was, I was dead, but now I'm made alive in Christ. You see in John chapter 9, I was blind, but now I see. I was in darkness, but now I'm in the light. I hadn't received mercy, but now I have received mercy. This passage, I was not a people of God, but now I have God. I was without hope, but now I've got God. If you have a but now moment in your life, he's talking to you. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. Amen? How did that happen? By the blood of Christ. Why did that happen? For he himself is our peace. So Jesus Christ is actually our peace who has made both one, and you might underline the word one as you go through here, it's pretty important, he's talking about unity, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How did he do that? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So he is peace and he makes peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body, so vertical and horizontal, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. Why? For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And so here what you have, amongst many things, this passage is rich, is that you've got a picture of if something is true vertically in your life, it needs to be expressed horizontally in your life. And the truth that he's talking about here is that because of Christ, through his blood, those of you who are far off have been brought near, you now have, because he is our peace and he provides peace, you have peace with God, vertically true. So you need to experience and express that, the peace of God, with one another. And what we see throughout the Bible is that when you have a vertical experience with God, it expresses itself in a horizontal expression to one another. If you do claim to have a vertical experience and don't have a horizontal expression, what's said in the Bible is that vertical wasn't real. If you love God, love your neighbor. You've received forgiveness, you will forgive. In fact, Jesus says if you don't forgive, it means you haven't been forgiven. So if, you, if you've been forgiven, those who've been forgiven much, love much. So the vertical precedes the horizontal, but when the vertical is real, the horizontal is an express reality. So when we have a vertical experience, we have a horizontal reality. When we don't have the vertical experience, when we claim that we do, then the horizontal reality is not there. God says you're a liar. It's 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, so you don't have to get mad at me. It's in the Bible. Here it is. It says, if we claim, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot, though it's impossible, love God whom he's not seen. The vertical precedes the horizontal. When the vertical is real, love for God, then it'll be expressed in love for neighbor. When, what's being talked about in this passage, you've been reconciled to God, what happens is you reconcile with each other. And the expression that he gives in this passage, or the example that he gives, is the Jews and Gentiles. To most of us, that doesn't mean much anything. Like, we know that we live in a tense world right now, like racial tensions are high right now. For us, some people think we're more divided now than we've ever been. That's not true, just to be clear historically. The Civil War, hundreds of thousands of people died, uh, equivalent of about 6.5 million, if you put it in today's population numbers, uh, would have died then. So, I think it was about 620,000 people in the Civil War. So we are not more divided now than we were divided then, but the Jews and Gentiles are more divided than we've ever been as a country. Let me read you what one Bible commentator said about the Jewish and Gentile tension. 
And then you think, have you ever experienced something like this? Uh, Kent Hughes, if you want to look him up, says, none of our racial barriers, our narrow nationalism, our iron curtains are more exclusive or unrelenting than the separation between Jews and Gentiles in biblical times. The Jews believed that Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. That's pretty intense hatred. You exist to fuel hell. A common motto was, the best of the serpents crush, the best of the Gentiles kill. It was not lawful to aid a Gentile woman in giving birth, for that would bring another heathen into the world. And when Paul writes this, to put it into historical context, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this next week, and you can read about this in Acts. This is not like some special history book that I'm reading. Uh, he was actually in jail because he had been falsely accused of taking a Gentile from Ephesus, actually, into a spot in the temple where Gentiles weren't allowed to go. So he's actually writing, he's experiencing the tension and the difficulty that was happening, and there were racial wars that were happening in Syria where Jews and Gentiles were killing each other in the streets. Okay, so they were experiencing more division than we're experiencing. And they experienced more hatred than any of us have ever experienced. And what did the passage say happened? Look at it. It doesn't say what they need to go do. Here's the formula. Have a unity conference. Go together and talk about unity. Look at what it says. Jesus is already done. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once or far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who's made us both one. So he's already made us one. This isn't something we do. He's made us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So the picture that he gives here, this dividing wall of hostility, Bible scholars argue about this. Is he talking about something that divides Jews and Gentiles? Is he talking about the law? Because he goes on to talk about the law and its ordinances in the next verse. Or is he talking about a physical wall, that there really was a physical wall in the temple? And so there, if it's one of the two things, let me just tell you what that would be like. Jesus said that he didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill the law. And he fulfilled the moral law. But he did abolish the ceremonial laws. Things like don't eat, don't touch, observe the Sabbath, this is why Jews don't eat pork. And so, but he doesn't say the solution here is let's all have a, a conference and we're going to explain to the Gentiles why the Jews don't want, I know your barbecue's really good, I totally get it, but here's, they don't want no hot dogs at the cookout, okay? That's not the point. Jesus already torn down the wall. But is it the physical wall that he's alluding to? The physical wall at the temple was interesting because uh, some of you have traveled with me to Israel, you know, if you go to the Wailing Wall, there's actually a physical wall that separates men and women from each other when you go to pray at the Wailing Wall. So on the left are the men, on the right are the women. Men aren't supposed to go where the women are at, women aren't supposed to go where the men are at. There's a, a physical divider there. There was a physical divider in the temple that said on it, any foreigner who travels past this point is responsible for their ensuing death. So in other words, you go past this wall, you're going to get killed, we're going to kill you, and it's your fault. And Paul's saying, that wall's been destroyed. Jesus already broke that wall down. It's already gone. But the image he gives is not, here's a Jew, here's the wall. Whether it's the law and it's more of an unsaid wall or it's a physical wall and the wall's broken down and there's a Gentile here, it doesn't matter what the wall was. Jesus broke it down. And now you don't just have two people there that now have to figure out how to relate with one another. What does the passage say? doesn't matter what I say. What does the passage say? Jesus made us both one. So Jesus has already done the work of reconciliation for us by abolishing the things that separate us, that we might reconcile us both to God and one body, so to God and with one another, through the cross killing the hostility. Jesus is our peace. And He wants reconciliation to be something we experience because if reconciliation is something we've experienced vertically, then it gets expressed horizontally because Jesus already accomplished it. 
This doesn't mean they were no longer Jew and Gentile. In fact, the first argument that churches had in the book of Acts is a racial argument, just so you know. The Jews were telling the Gentiles in order to become Christian, you had to become a Jew. And so then they did what churches do. They got together and they had a little meeting about it, Acts chapter 15. And they decided, no, that's not true. That's not at all what Jesus intended. You can keep your culture, but here's the reality. Jesus supersedes your culture. See, Christianity is not an American religion. It didn't start in America. It's not a, it's, we sometimes bring a whole lot of America into it, but that's not the point. of Christianity supersedes all cultures. Whether you have an African culture, whether you have an American culture, whether you have whatever, Asian culture, Mexican whatever, wherever you're from, this is all above all of that. You still have your culture, and that is true. I credit one of my uh, favorite pastors I get to listen to is Dr. Tony Evans. And he points out one time when I was uh, listening to him talk about Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, that John says, he was talking about being in heaven, he says, I looked and I saw from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. In other words, he saw that they were from a different nation. And then he says, Tony Evans says, if you're black on earth, you're going to be black in heaven. If you're white on earth, you're going to be white in heaven. If you're Asian on earth, you're going to be Asian in heaven. We're going to see the, diver- the differences are not some problem that needs to be dealt with. The reality is, though, that Christ supersedes all of that. And that Christianity is always meant to be a diverse gathering of people, the body of Christ. And so one uh, sociologist says this. You can look it up, put the sociologist's name on there. I won't try to pronounce it on the screen. But it says that Christianity is the largest and most diverse belief system in the world, representing the most even racial and cultural spread with roughly equal numbers of self-identifying Christians living in Europe, North America, Latin America, and Sub-Saharan Africa. Over 60% of Christians live in the global south. And the center of gravity for Christianity in the coming decades will likely be increasingly non-Western. According to Pew Research, by 2060, Sub-Saharan Africa could be home to 40% of the world's self-identifying Christians. And while China is currently the global center of atheism, Christianity is spreading, this is incredible news, there so quickly that China could have the largest Christian population in the world by 2025. That's pretty soon. And could be a majority Christian country by 2050, according to this Purdue sociologist. Hmm. So, in order for somebody to be a Christian doesn't mean they have to be an American like many of us. It's super, so Christianity, there's people meeting in Africa right now. It looks different than this. People meeting in China, it looks different than this. They look different than many of the people in this room. But they're one with us in Christ because of what Christ has done at the cross. Amen? Amen. Now, we live in this time right now where there's a lot of racial tension in the world. And a lot of people arguing about how to come up with solutions, how to come up with problems. And I get asked questions. These are the kind of questions I get asked sometimes. And nobody talked to me about this when I was in seminary, by the way. Somebody called it. They'll say, I thought people were going to ask, are you a spirit-filled church? Do you believe the Bible? Like things like that. People call the church and they say, are you a social justice church? Are you a woke church? Are you a CRT church? Are you a BLM church? Are you, and they're asking all these initials and all these different things. You know what my answer is? We're a Jesus church. Because here's why. He's actually the answer. Because you can come up with all the philosophers and all the theories and all the concepts. Jesus has already done it. He's already brought all these people together. He's already brought all the nations together. When he tells us to preach the gospel, he says, preach the gospel to all nations. And so then people ask me questions like this. Would a racist be more comfortable at your church? Or would a minority be more comfortable at your church? And I go, well, you're assuming that my goal for people at our church is their comfort. I hope they're all uncomfortable at my church because we're supposed to be radically following Jesus. And unless you are Him, or you've been conformed totally to Him, you should be uncomfortable. My goal is not your comfort, it's your conformity to Christ. 
And as you become more like Jesus, then you can engage people in real conversations. And you may disagree. Like, of course, I'm not going to agree. If the Black Lives Matter movement is going to come and say, you've got to destroy the nuclear family, which is in Genesis 2, God's plan. So you're starting with a premise of saying that we're going to do something contrary to God's plan. There's two ways to walk, and that's not the way I want to walk. Doesn't mean I can't have a conversation with you and learn things from you. But, and this is very nuanced now as we get into this, I'm not Jesus juking you and just going, Jesus is the answer. Our goal in all these conversations needs to not be, can we all get along and have a conference and talk about all of our different cultures? Our goal needs to be to get these people to Jesus. Because if we're all hanging out with each other, yeah, praise the Lord. But 90% of us are going to hell, who cares? And so when we're having these conversations, we need to be representing Jesus in these conversations. He wants us together. That's not the question. The question is, are we going to just focus on all the problems and focus on all the worldly decision-making process, or are we going to be able to be Jesus in these moments of these conversations? And let me tell you something, your Twitter activism is not working. Nobody's changing their mind because of your memes, okay? Sometimes people write me and say, I wish you'd tweet about it. I wish you'd do that. I'm like, I'm hanging out with my kids. Get out of here. Like, right? Like, it's just like, that's not, that's not, you got to live in a life and relationship with people different than you people. God wants that. In fact, we, when Jesus prayed for you, that's what he prayed. Some of you know the story of our church. Some of you don't know the story of our church. Uh, just real briefly, um, a few years ago, uh, God did an amazing thing. We brought two churches together. We became one church. One was a historically charismatic church called Covenant Church, and one was a, a historically Southern Baptist church, South, Southbridge Fellowship. And uh, what happened was a white pastor and a black pastor became friends, and over about a year-long uh, friendship, we were talking about different struggles in our churches. Struggle in, in his church was, uh, which is meeting at this campus, was uh, we didn't have people, we didn't have money, and we had these big facilities. Struggle in our church was we had people, we had money, we didn't have facility. And so one day I said, why don't we buy your facility? And uh, he said, you got to talk to the elders. Long story short, lots of God moments. The chairman of their elders, who now uh, serves as an elder at our church, uh, looked at us as Jack Murray, and he said, our church was not for sale when you approached us. It's still not for sale. But we'd like to give it to you. And we'd like to join you. And now, in the conversations we had leading up to that moment, we had talked about some silly stuff, all right? Like, they thought because we're Baptists, we are super uptight. And so they asked us questions like, hey, when you worship, can you raise your hands? And we're like, even if you don't have a question, sure, go ahead. Like, yeah, celebrate. We asked them questions like, you run around throwing stuff at people? Like, we're just asking, asking questions, trying to get to know each other. We didn't have all that figured out at that, point, at that moment. But you know what we had? Jesus. So on June 10th, 2018, I preached a message from two verses. It's Jesus praying for you in the New Testament. Do you know he actually prays for you in the Bible? Yeah, we know he's praying for us now, but he's praying for us in the Bible. John chapter 17, uh, he says this. He's just prayed for his disciples that are physically there with him. And he says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, those that are physically there with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may, the first thing he prays for you in the Bible, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, and me, and I and you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. So the first thing he prays for is our unity, that we'd be one. Now, he's made us one when he died on the cross for our sins. But are we experiencing it? Some of us put that away, tuck it away, passive Christianity. We're not involved in that. Grace, the first work he tells us when he talks about our grace works is reconciling with one another. God cares a whole lot more about our unity than most of us do. Most of us are so passive. If you have a, I bet most of you here have been in church long enough that you've had a church split or seen a church split, or you all know the cranky person who wants to tell you everything about how things should be different at the church, right? You know those people? And what do we, let's just pray for them. Let's just pray for them. Do you know what Titus says? Titus chapter three says, warn a divisive person once, 
warn them a second time, and you're done with them. God's serious about this. You hand them over to Satan. Let God take care of them. He can discipline them. He can rebuke them. He can bring difficult, whatever he's got to do in their life. You stop playing games with those people, divisive people. He's praying here for our, our unity. And he says that we'd be one just as the Father and the Son are one. Wait a minute. Father, Son, Holy Spirit in Trinity, living in perfect unity for all of eternity. And we're being invited into that. How do they experience that? Here's why. There's no sin. When we have a division problem, we have a sin problem. Racism is sin. The answer to racism is not reverse racism, by the way, either. That's, it's all sin. To creating more division is not a solution. That's more sin. There's only one that can solve the sin problem. His name is Jesus. That's why this is not a Jesus juke on you. It's going, we actually have the solution. We got to be bringing that to the world. And then we do that by living it out. When our two churches came together, we theologically had some differences. We had Jesus in common. We had the, the mission in common. But you don't have people in the community that were coming up to me and asking me about it. Believers and non-believers. Remember one time I was working at the time I was working out at the gym at uh, uh, YMCA on Six Forks, and a guy I didn't know came up to me in the locker room. Which, ladies, I don't know what the locker room's like for you, but dudes don't talk. All right, we're changing clothes. Like, if you stay away from me, why are you looking over this way? We got a problem. Meet me at the weight room. And so. This guy just comes up to me, and I'm getting ready for the day, and he says, I heard what's going on at your church. And I'm like, why are you talking to him? Why are you so close? Like, is what I was thinking. But the Christians, and I'm a pastor, so I'm like, hey, okay. And so, and then he says, uh, how does that even work? And so we started talking. He just wanted to, like, see, he hadn't seen anything like that. I remember I was at WRAL soccer fields. I was talking to a woman about the gospel. I was trying to lead her to Jesus, I invited her to church. She goes, I've heard of, non-believer, I've heard of your church. And what's, how is that happening? Can you even imagine if we started having so many different cultures, and we've got different cultures represented, but not like we could. Can you imagine if we had so many different races, so many different cultures at our church that people are like, what's going on at your church? Are you a CRT? Are you a BLM? Are you a social justice? Are you doing these things? What program? Are you paying people to do this? And we're like, oh, Jesus? You should come meet him. Wouldn't that be incredible? We're going to celebrate communion today. Pastor Brad's going to lead us in that in just a moment. Um, but do you know that you can't really have communion if you don't have union? You can't have communion with God when you've got disunion with people. You can't have communion with God when you've got disunion with God. But if you've been reconciled with God, you reconcile with people. The vertical precedes the, the horizontal, but they, they, they're related to one another. And so, so Paul warns the Corinthians, and, and, and um, Brad's going to read some passages in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. They're a hugely divided church. And there's so much division there. There's some following one guy, some are following another guy. And Paul tells, or Jesus says, follow Jesus. And then the reason why they're having problems at communion is not racial there with Jew and Gentile, it's, it's wealth. And so all these things can cause division. Satan wants to cause division. Mask, like all kinds, he wants to cause division over everything. And so they're having a problem because the wealthy people are showing up early for communion and having a big meal, and the poor people don't got to work at the same time, so they're coming late, and there's a problem. And then he tells them at the end of this passage, he says, you guys are doing this causing division, and it's why some of you are getting sick and dying. God's disciplining you, and you don't even know it. And so this unity is important. And listen to what he says, and I'll just set the context for what Pastor Brad's going to lead us in in just a moment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 16 and 17, he says this, the cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation, is that not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread, Jesus. This is my body, he says. And so what some of you are going to do today is reflect on your sin, reflect on the cross, reflect on your forgiveness, 
Well, the most courageous thing that some of you could do today would be to not take communion if you lack reconciliation in these horizontal relationships. Might be with a spouse, might be with a business partner, might be with somebody in this room. What does the Bible say? What does Jesus say about that? He says, don't praise me with your lips, your heart's far from me. He says, if you're at the altar and you're about to leave your gift, leave it there, go reconcile a relationship. If you realize there's a relationship that's not reconciled, and then come back and complete your worship. Otherwise, it's fake worship anyways. We don't need any fake worship here today, amen? Some of you might need to get up, talk to somebody else in this room, go talk to somebody at an old church, talk to like who… We're going to let the Holy Spirit tell you who and how, but let's not play. Father, we come before you today. We love you. We need you. We are so grateful that you would come after us on a rescue mission to seek and save those who were lost. Many of us here at one time were lost, but now are found. And we rejoice with you. If there's any here that do not know your son, Jesus Christ, I pray you'd save them today. I pray you'd give them a once was, but now, and today would be the first step in the but now. You'd overwhelm them with your grace, just like you rescued Captain Phillips out of that boat in that movie, that you would rescue them out of their sin and out of their self and from Satan and bring them on a new path walking with you, that your grace would be poured out into their life. You'd save them, rescue them, and bring them into a relationship with you, and they'd walk with you by your grace. And Father, I pray for those of us that are going to partake in communion. I pray you give us a unity unlike we've ever had. And if there's disunity, I pray that you wouldn't let us pretend like it's not there, that we would deal with it taking practical steps, empowered by your grace, your Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.